up, Danny? What's up, Ty? Not too much. Just going to record episode 141 of Fried Squirms. Of course, you're going to do that with me. So <laughs> I promise this will not be an ordeal. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> How was your weekend and the rest of your week leading up to this episode? Was it Thanksgiving week? Yeah. yeah. Okay, then it was good. <laughs> I mean, work was fucking what it was leading up into thanksgiving good point yeah thanksgiving i got to fucking be super lazy so that was cool this weekend hung out and was pretty lazy and made some food and shit i don't know it was pretty cool with it being thanksgiving i really wanted to just like indulge in like using that as like a fucking rest day and shit but like i still had a shit i had to get done so you know got a new podcast up online yeah (laughs) <laughs> That's pretty exciting, though, man. That's pretty awesome. So, yeah, I hadn't really been up to a whole lot last week for the same reasons. The holiday pretty much put a dead halt to a lot of things I wanted to do, but did a little light cooking, hung out with my sister and my brother-in-law and my nephews, all that good stuff. Weekend, I think I already told you that. There was a little birthday party I had for my nephew yesterday, so not bad. Outside of that, just kind of same old. Also, I want to say that because I had Thanksgiving off, if I can completely threw my entire week off and I've thought it's the wrong day for like every day since Thanksgiving. That's a good point. I wish somebody that I knew that I hope that they had a happy Sunday today. Today is not Sunday. It is Monday. <laughs> yeah, it has thrown some things off. And it's been just, yeah. At some point, my brain will click back into what day it actually is. Probably tomorrow since it's the start of my work week. But I have been just discombobbled all fucking week. <laughs> You know, with having family in town and having the holiday, things like that, same thing. It's been like kind of a lazy week for the most part. But aside from that, man, did run across a few bits of news. Not very much. Same reason. I mean, you're going to hear this episode <laughs> literally a week after all the Black Friday stuff and Cyber Monday mm-hmm. sales and things like that. I kind of perused a few things. There was a couple of things that caught my eye, but I never really pulled the trigger on anything. I, didn't, I mean, I guess Cyber Monday is technically still going on, so I suppose I could go take a look at a few things. But I didn't really check anything out on the horror side. Even the shit I did check out, I wasn't too impressed with this year's Cyber Monday deals. I'm kind of in the same boat, to be quite frank. But that's okay. I mean, you know, they can't all be winners. Yeah. It's okay. Or at least out of the shit that I want to buy. There's a couple <laughs> things where I'm like, oh, I already bought one of those. So. Yeah, there are some things Never I would have liked wrong. to have had, but I was like, I can wait. That's not a big deal. But as far as a news front, I've got three bits of news, and that will round out what I found interesting this week. But one of them involves an actress, Elizabeth Banks. And I did see that she's going to star and direct in Invisible Woman for Universal, which is pretty interesting. So from what I understand, it's kind of a new take on the 1940s Invisible Woman. This is an original pitch by Banks. Apparently, some of the stuff that it talks about here is that it says that the tone is similar to Thelma and Louise and if they met American Psycho. Okay. It's like, all right, we'll see what happens there. I dig Elizabeth Banks. I know she's been catching some heat lately for some comments she made regarding the latest Charlie's Angels movie. Whatever. Most of that heat probably isn't as warranted as people like to think it is. But I dig her. I hope her all the best. We'll see how interested I actually become in this project when we get a little bit closer to it. I'm right there with you. All right, so the next bit of news I have involves a release for the first time on Blu-ray. And for fans of the William Castle-produced bug... 
it is getting an official Scream Factory release on March 10th, 2020, and this is the 1975 horror film. So just like anything else, it's always going to be full of really cool featurettes, behind-the-scenes stuff, some commentary. So for those who are interested, check it out next year. And then the last little bit involves another first-time release, and that's from Arrow Video. And they have announced that they are dropping the One Miss Call trilogy for the first time ever on Blu-ray. So for those who are curious, you can get it here in the States, the United Kingdom, and in Canada in February of 2020. So it's pretty cool, man. Like I said, this is uh, based off of Takashi Miike's One Miss Call. Mm. So we'll see what happens there. And yeah, like I said, that was pretty much the only things that really caught my eye. Everything else was just kind of... Shit we've already talked about before, just be redundant at this point. Okay, cool. Well, shit, I guess in that case, let's just move into the guts and bolts for Calvair. Yeah, yeah. By the way, we're doing Calvair. You guys saw that episode title. <laughs> guts and bolts. Hell yeah. Calvair. The ordeal. So, spoiler-free synopsis for Calvair. A singer on his way. Is it home that he's going? Where is no, he? he's going no, to he's a going... Christmas gala. Oh, okay, yeah. He's going somewhere. Van breaks down. And the innkeeper that he runs across is just a little too into him. And that's all I'm going to say. That's right. That's all you need to know. Brief this is number one fan. Yeah. Big time. <laughs> so with that brief synopsis, we do like to talk about our cast and crew. And this week, I'll lead off with our director and one half of our writing team. And that gentleman is Fabrice Duvels. And he's also known for directing such films as Vinyan, which was his follow-up to Calvaire. He's also known for directing the films Alleluia, Message from the King, and more recently, the film Adoration. And as a part of the writing team, we also have Romain Protat. He's known for helping write the screenplay for the films Alleluia, Accidental Family, and the film Adoration. The cinematographer is actually a well-known gentleman, too, and this is Benoit Deby. He's known for being the cinematographer in such films as Gaspar Noé's Irreversible, Dario Argento's The Card Player, the film Vinyan, Enter the Void. He's also done Harmony Korine's Spring Breakers, the film Love, Climax, and The Sisters Brothers. Moving along, we have editor Sabine Habo, and this is actually his only film credit. Oh, shit. Which is interesting. The music was composed by Vincent Cahe, and he's known for composing the music for the films Alleluia, Message from the King, and Adoration, which these are all Fabrice films. Production companies are very many. I don't want to list them all, so you can go ahead and look them up on the database if you're curious. The distributors were Mars Distribution. They helped with the 2005 France theatrical release. And Palm Pictures helped with the 2006 United States theatrical release. And it was subtitled, of course. The release date was May 18th, 2004 at the Cannes Film Festival in France. And it does have a tagline. And that tagline is, Some people would kill for company. Oh, shit. That's a pretty good tagline. We usually have some pretty shitty taglines. I kind of actually really like that one. <laughs> it fits, man. So, moving along, I want to start off with our cast. And this is a gentleman we've actually talked about before real briefly. And this gentleman I'm talking about is Laurent Lucas. And part of the reason why, I'll mention here in just a moment, but he plays our singer, Mark Stevens, in the film. He's known for being in such films as I Hate Love, the film Pola X, What the Friend Like Harry, Teresia, he's also in Alleluia, 
The film that we actually talked about was the film Raw, and he was also in the film Adoration. Moving along, we have Brigitte Lahey. She plays Mademoiselle Vicky, and she has a very interesting past. So before she got into mainstream acting and television, she was an adult film star. And she actually was a part of the first wave, I guess if you want to call that, of French films and pornography. So oh, she got shit. into it, yeah, once uh, France started filming those. So anyway, some of her mainstream roles actually involve some Jean Roland films from the 70s. He was a well-known French horror film director. And some of those films involve Grapes of Death, the film Fascination. She was also in the films I for Icarus. She was in the film The Night of the Hunted, For a Cop's Hide, the film Henry and June, and Two Orphan Vampires as well. We have actress Gigi Corsani. She plays the role of Madame Langhoff. She's a part of like the group home. Mm -hmm. This is actually her only film appearance. Moving along, we have Jean-Luc Couchard. He plays the role of Boris. He's been in such films as Taxi 4, In the Arms of an Enemy, Dead Man Talking, and Win Win. And also, he was in Adoration as well, which is pretty cool. It's kind of, that was Jean-Luc Couchard, not Jean-Luc Picard. Completely two different people. That would have been interesting seeing Jean-Luc Picard as Boris. Fun Captain Picard as Holy Boris. Holy shit. This film would have been like leaps and bounds more hilarious. Moving along, we have Jackie Borrier. He plays the role of Bartel. And he's known for such films as Cold Moon, the film Cold Water. He was also in the film Encore. He's in the film Swindle, Three Dancing Slaves. He was also an honoree in the film The Roommate's Party. We have Philippe Nihon. He's actually a gentleman we've talked about before, but he plays the role of Robert Hortin. He was in the film Carney. He was also in the films I Stand Alone. He was a part of Brotherhood of the Wolf. He was in the film Irreversible. We talked about him on High Tension. And he was also in the films Humanes and A War Horse. Meanwhile, along, we have Philippe Grandhari. He plays the role of Thomas Orton, the son of Robert Orton in this film. He's known for such things as Folie and Belly. He was in the film Kill Me Please and the film Bullhead. Moving along, we have Joe Prestier. He plays Farmier Maline. He was known for such things as Femme Fatale, Irreversible, 36th Precinct, 13 Zemetti. He's actually a film I owned at one time. It's actually a really good film, yeah. And the film Colt 45. I've got a few more actors. Yeah. (laughs) These actors, this is all their only Only appearances. Yeah, Yeah. and they're basically a part of the village. They're the Tampanese. That clan. Yeah, they're they're the yokels. (laughs) Yeah. We have Marc Lefebvier. He plays the role of Lucien. Now, keep in mind, too, like, they never get mentioned by name. No. So I'm going to give them credit because they're in it. I was looking at their credits right here, and it's completely confusing me. Yeah. I don't know who's who, but... Exactly. I'm kind of in the same boat, but I'll... I know they can dance. Gotta give... <laughs> dance, dance, revolution. All right, the other gentleman we have is uh, Alfred David uh, Pinguin. He plays the role of Roland. We have Elaine Delanue. He plays the role of Gaunt. We have Vincent Cahay. He plays the role of Stan La Pianist. I was going to say, so I know who that one is. Yeah. I think Gaunt might be giant. The big guy? Yeah. yeah. And Johan Mais plays the role of Rosto. And that pretty much rounds out. If the I cast. had to guess who Rosto is, I'd guess he's the guy dancing opposite the giant. Yeah, I could see that. But yeah, that's our cast, our crew. You gave us a brief synopsis. And Roland's the guy that sits down at the bar. Perhaps, yeah, I could see that. Or perhaps the bartender. Yeah, I mean, you've got a good shot of figure out some of these guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, at least we know who the pianist is. All right. So, like I said, that's our cast, our crew. You gave us a synopsis. This film does warrant some warnings. So, with that in mind. You're going to see some blood. 
There's some violence. There's rape. There's some bestiality. Some gunplay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you don't like the woods, if you, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This film overall ends up getting not it super its... duper weird, but it gets weird. Yeah, it gets a little surreal and at times. Unsettling. However, I think it's also one of those films that is often described as being bloodier than it truly is, too. It's kind of like last week. It's lumped in with the extreme films, but it's not quite as extreme as it's no, made it's out to really be. No, it's really not. Especially not when you're sitting down and like really watching it. But, I mean, it does get lumped in with that. And I've seen that come up in a couple of reviews I was reading, where people were like, oh, when this film falls flat, they just go with the gore and i'm like what gore yeah i read that too i know exactly what you're talking about i'm like eh, no that's not fair yeah. that's not a fair assessment so keep that in mind like it's not as extreme as a lot of films that we have covered in this same kind of movement but neither is it tame no it's not tame either it's it weird in moments it warrants being warned about but it's not a martyrs it's not a inside no it slags a little bit behind when it comes to that mm-hmm. yeah but still definitely worth checking. quite a macabre that's a good point. Yeah, anyway, let's not beat around the bush. Let's <laughs> talk about fucking Calvair. How does that make you squeal? Oh, Belgium. This is our first Belgian film. That's true. Also, I just want to say I'm so excited to have watched this movie after you bringing it up <laughs> when we saw Raw like two years ago now. Dude, it's so wild. So random, too, that one of the main actors in this film happened to be in Raw. And Raw was a film that you and I, we checked it out at the Roxy, which was really cool. But shout out, Roxy. Yeah, shout out once again. But just, like, sitting there and, like, holy shit, I know who this fucking guy is. And, you know, relaying it back to you and then confirming it. So it's like, cool. That's kind of a cool talking point, not only for that film, but as a segue into talking about Calvera as well. So this is one I've been kind of high about for a while. And I am glad that we're finally talking about it. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, as far as reviewing it, man, I'm glad we're finally getting to do it today. I now know why you were so excited to see who the father was. Like, that makes complete sense. This movie weirdly feels weirdly in line with a lot of the other movies we've been watching this year. I this know, is right? almost like Wicker Manny. A little bit, yeah. At times, I was also like, this is almost kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre-y. But you know what? But here's, I'm wondering if you pick this up. Because I felt there was one movie that this resembled more than those two, though. I'll give you a hint. It's on the fucking wall. Oh, probably Baskin. I was thinking Tusk. Oh, you know, that's a good point, too. And the captive part of it, yeah. That's a very good point, dude. I wasn't thinking about that. I was like, Kevin Smith probably never saw this movie. If he like, has, I know that's that, off to Kevin. I know that he likes some horror. Like, he's not super into it, but I know he likes some horror. We've pointed out, like, Abe and Cooper. Abe and is partially because of fucking reflecting that, skin. That still like, baffles me that he knew about that and <clears throat> chose to use that reference, too. But this and Tusk are remarkably similar. Not just captive, but, like, the transformation aspect. Dude, it's crazy. And the way Boris constructs his really badly told lies reminded me of how Michael Parks would sort of shift back into being a simpleton at times when he was confronted with shit. That's a good point. But yeah, the similarities are uncanny. I mean, maybe it's just because I always have Kevin Smith on my brain, but and that sounds just as weird as you want to take it. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I do like that comparison, though, because it does make sense the more that you kind of see how the things unfurl in this film. 
yeah, but I like it. But like I said, I do have a bit of history with this. Like I said, I bought this film probably like 2006, somewhere in that range, 2005, six, and whatever. And like I said, as soon as I watched it with some friends, like, wow, this movie is super bizarre. It came out, like I said, around that same time that films like High Tension and Inside were coming out. So, and once again, because it was labeled as one of those extreme kind of disturbing films, I put it on my watch list, so to speak, and found a copy and the rest is history. But like I remarked earlier, I don't feel like it quite warrants that extreme It's not label. extreme. No. But it's I can understand the disturbing. Fest. No, it's not. Certainly it's not. And that's kind of... Uh, disturbing, yes. Yeah. I get that. Absolutely. There was a comment with my little viewing party last night where there was a comment like, is this really a horror film? And I was like, yeah, but it's not. It's a psychological horror. That's what I was explaining. It's like it's not your traditional slasher with gore and blood and, you know, the usual tropes. It's not trying to scare you. No, this is more of a. But you're witnessing his breakdown as this happens to him. Absolutely. It is very psychological. Plus, it's just, like you said, fucking weird and off-putting. Anyway, I didn't know much about it other than it gets weird at the end. That's what I knew about it, and that it was often lumped in with like the more extreme shit. But going in, I made a couple assumptions, and maybe it ended up flavoring even a couple of the things that, as long as I took good notes, that I might point out later. But if I didn't take good notes, I'm too high to remember right now. So yeah. some of my observations might go unsaid in this episode, I suppose. But That's okay. I was expecting something a little bit more overtly religious with calvaire i was thinking of the fact like well that's french for both calvary and ordeal right calvary is a type of cross ordeal could just as much be a reference to the passion of the christ yeah so you're absolutely right it has huge religious overtones not only does calvary represent the cross but it's also another name for golgotha where christ was crucified so yeah and we're in the spoiler section a crucifixion happens. You're right. But it also wasn't quite as there as I assumed it was going into it. Right. I did a little research, and it might give it a little bit more credence, so to speak, when it comes to that particular argument. But this film, like the way it plays out without us actually going into it, it reminded me of a couple different things. It reminded me of like fairy tales as well because it is set in the woods. So there was a couple of things that reminded me maybe like, uh, Red Riding Hood and Seven Dwarves. Not necessarily to that extent, but I think maybe some of the allusions to that, perhaps. I was going to point it out later, but I guess while I'm still thinking about the sort of religious, pseudo-religious aspect of it, it's not quite like a Jesus allegory, but it's kind of Life of Brian. You I know mean, what I mean? It kind of is. It's a guy who doesn't have anything particularly special about him. He is a singer, and he's all right. Yeah, I mean, he's but he's decent. playing assisted living facilities, <laughs> and you know yeah, that's that's his circuit, living yeah. out of his van. But people are weirdly attracted, drawn to him, yeah, and deify him in weird ways, and but twist his image against his own will ultimately and thinking of the christ and religion parallels is the only way to make the end of this movie work yeah absolutely with the guy just like tell me you loved me as he's dying yeah so i guess with that we can kind of segue into the film and how you Mm -hmm. know how it unfurls while we're bringing these points up in the first place so right off the bat 
you know, you get our lead actor, Laurent Lucas. And like I said, this is quite a departure from his role in Raw, right, where he's just very minimal. But we find out he is a singer, right? He's performing at this group home. He's kind of wooing some of the older crowd. We get this lady, this older lady who comes in while he's getting out of makeup, out of costume, what have you. And she just tells him, you know, she's very thankful. She makes a move on him, right? Right. And he kind of pulls away. But he's doing it not to be mean or anything. It's just, you know, he's just it's not It's like interested. you just put your hand in your fucking pussy. Right. And then, you know, she's ashamed. She calls herself a whore and a slut and blah, blah, blah. Dude, I had to write down a note. I'm like, if that shit happened and then the person acted like that directly afterwards, I don't care that I was just sexually assaulted. I would feel so fucking guilty. <laughs> I know, right? You old dumb whore. <laughs> but here's a few things just in that scene alone that mm-hmm. because we do these films a lot and we have, well, not that we have to, but. I think we both have a habit now of, of watching these a little bit more critically, you know, analytically. And I'm like, all right, he's looking into like a three-way mirror or triptych, right? And I was like, all right, so there's going to be some things getting mirrored here. <laughs> Somewhere down the road, there's some fractions, right? A, all right, a I... lot later on, he kind of mirrors some of the things that happens with some of the characters in the film. I was kind of surprised at some of that. I didn't really catch some of it till the second time through, but I was like, oh, that's awkward. Yeah. It makes the movie almost a little bit more disturbing. All right, so not only that, right? On the way out, he gets approached again by a younger lady, but older than him, of course, right? Mm-hmm. And she's pretty much like, oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And uh, he kind of, he's refusing. You know, he just, he's got to get to this Christmas party. Honestly, though, that one seemed more like it's because old lady staring from the yeah, window. Yeah, I mean, there is a guilt there, and that's why I say there is a mirror because he kind of gets put in that role a little bit later on mm-hmm. by looking out the windows and shit. But ultimately what he's doing is he's driving down the countryside. And the thing I like about that, and you don't see a whole lot maybe necessarily in American cinema, is the perspective shots of just the windshield and the drive. It reminded me a little bit of I Saw the Devil. Oh, that's interesting. My thought there was as long as it went on, it seemed a little bit indulgent. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it, it is dro- no There's point. There's one thing in this movie that point. takes a long time that I really actually adore it for taking as long <laughs> as it does. But that to me, I was like, all right, come on. Let's get there. We know what this is. Let's, right, right, let's get right. There. I mean, it does. It does kind of drag, but... It does set it up where once he does get lost and it gets more ominous and we finally run into another character, Boris, and like, wow, this is an exaggeration. It kind of does feel like maybe Dagon a little bit with like oh. these weird people just coming out. and Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> real creepy. For some reason, even though, I mean, it's quite a bit different, but for some reason it still reminded me a lot of like Texas Chainsaw at this point be honest right i mean you could say there's parallels even to like house of a thousand corpses just the breaking down of the car in the middle of a rainstorm but one thing i started to notice the second time through mm-hmm. even though i've seen this film several times i was like all right this is the first time that you get this like severe sudden burst of extreme weather it kind of happens a lot in this film mm. you get these really calm moments and then when shit really hits the fan it's like extreme weather whether it's snow rain etc what kind of puzzles me doesn't puzzle me. 
like I don't care that much, I guess. And that's not to say I didn't enjoy this movie. I enjoyed this movie, but there doesn't need to be a reasoning for me to enjoy it any more or any less. But I do find it weird that Boris is the only character that's not affected by Mark. I have Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because let's, okay. I just got done talking a lot of real nerdy shit. And one of the things I noticed about this, about Mark, I mean, it's like he automatically casts a fucking charm spell on whoever's around him. And he doesn't even know he's doing it. You're right. But with Boris, he pretty much tells him to shut his mouth. He's like, when I say be quiet, I mean shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I wrote like, dude has charisma at 20 and all of his other stats are just nothing. He yeah. definitely doesn't have the intelligence or wisdom to get the fuck out of his situation. Oh, man. Or the strength to fight his way out of it. No, he's just very... Or the dexterity to worm his way out of those fucking ropes later on. Jeez, man. My mind was already thinking about how am I getting out of this snare when that happens much later on. But even with the introduction, finally to Bartell, you know, letting him have the room and all that stuff... There's a transition that happens. I Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I've also seen some stuff that you could argue a little bit perhaps with this idea is when he falls asleep or when he goes asleep, he's laid out with his clothes on and he wakes up with his shirt off and stuff. And I was like, well... Oh, I was curious if Bartell did that. All right. You can argue that because you don't know for sure. But I was like, that's kind of an odd transition shot because you know it sets up things later on. But I've also seen that you can make an argument. It was a little like Dracula in a sense. He's inviting in a traveler mm. in for the night. Later on, he serves him food, but he doesn't eat. He watches, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, ah, it could be a reach, but I could see that, too. Yeah, even the transition from that night where it's raining into the next day, it's kind of nice and sunny, a little bit outside. But what we learn, like I said, is uh, Bartel is setting Mark up. We don't know that initially at first, but that's essentially what it is. is he's setting him up. He's making these phone calls. That we find out he's not really making <laughs> I was all over Tusk at this point. I was like, yep, like I know exactly what's going on. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, we watch enough of these that I, right. like, I well, bet we could have it's, inter- what's going it's on anyway. It's interesting to see how he's setting the things up. Because he warns him, too, when Mark decides he wants to take a walk in the woods. He's like, you don't go down in that village. And he's almost like cracking up at that. I mean, like, he wants to almost cry. It's like, ooh. The whole twist with the village is what set this movie apart for me. Because most of the time, he's making that stupid plea for him not to go to the village because then he's going to get help. He's not going to be able to keep him to himself. And the truth is, is the village is just as fucked up, if not more fucked up, than he is. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, his warning did hold Like, it's value. a legit warning. <laughs> right, it wasn't like you were saying, like, oh, if you go down the village, you're going to run away from me. It's like... I don't go down to the village, <laughs> you know? All right. There's, man, I don't want to reveal it yet. Let's just keep going. But, yeah, at this point, too, he makes comment of the fact that they're both performers as well. Like, that's a driving home Dude, point. He kept going on it. And I'm like, all right, Michael Scott, I get it. You're a fucking performer, too. <laughs> <laughs> but Boris does something that triggers a thought in a theory as well. And the director clearly states this so it's not necessarily your theory but anyway when he's pointing that out he's like oh yeah i see that your performance right here on your van and boris when he separates with mark bartell that is Mm -hmm. and and boris is still worried about bella and he's like bella but he starts to make the sideways movement like the dance later on oh 
Yeah. So there's a few times in this film where characters do that without there being the music scene. I think that's a, like a tip off to something else. Oh, shit. See, I had my own thoughts on the village dance later, so okay. now I'm really curious to what... I didn't put together his little shimmy there was pretty much the same thing. I think it's a clever way of doing that, which I'll explain later on. Anyway, the whole point is Mark does go into the woods, right? Takes the walk, sees the villagers performing acts in a barn. It's a direct homage to the Deliverance, but <laughs> it's with farm animals. Yeah, performing acts in a barn. <laughs> Watch the villagers fuck a pig. Yeah. A one villager fuck a pig. And they're, you know, encouraging this guy. Mm-hmm. And there's some of them kind of like, you know. And now, now let's, <laughs> let's, let's get this right. Like, we're not watching, like. No, I mean, they're not showing it. It's like, you hear the noises. The guy gets in the position, but you and never see the like act. spooning it. Yeah. But. <laughs> you only sort of see his ass from behind. Right. And Mark's looking in from, mm-hmm. like, you know, the broken planks and shit, missing planks. And he knows to get out when that pig is squealing. <laughs> the funny thing to me is when he returns and Bartel's on the phone. Mm-hmm. And he's like, how was your walk? Like, Beautiful countryside. <laughs> you went to the village, <laughs> No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, so he keeps setting him up, right? It's like he's trying to work on the car. He knows it's the battery. He's bullshitting him. This is essentially what's happening. So he keeps making... Mark stay the night, and it finally gets to a point where Mark has like dinner and stuff. I think this is interesting. This is kind of setting up the whole Gloria thing, is that you know he's feeding him food and he's talking about Gloria and how he brings all that stuff up and he tells a joke, mm-hmm. right? He tells his joke. His joke's kind of funny. I, I it sets up a scene later it. up too, right? I liked it quite a bit. <laughs> I mean, it is funny. I give him that. It's very funny. It's about the dwarves who had a Sunday rec league for soccer. <laughs> they would go to pubs to have drinks on Sundays, and there's a guy ordering drinks, and they keep coming downstairs, and he the thinks it's the foosball table. table. Yeah. It, it is pretty funny. But what the whole point is is that he wants Mark to sing because Gloria was a singer. I didn't tell you half a joke. Right. Don't sing me half a song, bro. And so he goes into it. Now, the thing I do like that about... That part was awkward because he was being weirdly pushy about it, but... Right, but Mark didn't put up a fight or anything. He's, you know, all right, I'll do you a solid. <laughs> but he's setting up things. But there's some interesting tells, right, in that sequence. Is, he said it's basically, the director of this is, it's an homage to Psycho when Norman Bates has dinner mm. with, I think it's the traveling lady. And, you know, he's, I guess he's telling a similar story, probably about mother, <laughs> you know, to her. But for me, the thing I started noticing was, you start off more with like just a, a portrait shot, essentially, of Mark. And the more you have those one-on-ones, it starts to pan in on him to kind of show a little bit of like this transition. But it also does a vertical change, too, because there's certain scenes when Bartel's talking to him, pouring him drinks, and you're seeing more of his mid-riff shot. Mm-hmm. And then when Mark stands, it you see him kind of sink a little bit, the way it's framed. So it was like it felt like there was a power transition. Like Mark was having that pull on him now. Mm. But long story short, he performs the song, Bravo. He goes to sleep. That's when shit really hits the fucking fan. So well, now that Gloria's been brought up, yeah, I think it's fair to point out the other bit of mirroring that I noticed, and that's Boris and Bella, and Bartel <laughs> and Mark. Yeah. 
I was thinking this movie has a weird way of doing triples in this. Like you have Bartel, Boris, and Bella, right? You can also say that there's three, like Gloria, Bella, and Mark are all the same thing, essentially. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and you also, God damn it! So Bella is Boris's dog, dog, <laughs> who he has accepted as a cow. Yeah, the cow belongs to the son of High Tension. Yes, <laughs> Bartel ends up turning Mark into Gloria, who is his love, who High Tension also had a thing for. All right. <laughs> That's, I mean, and it's Im- yeah, it's implied that she was sleeping with all the town, but the person who's making that implication isn't quite in his right mind, obviously. So. Right, right, right. <laughs> all right, so this man, this is gonna be wild. And when the director states this, I know what he means, but it's still hard to try to wrap all those pieces together like that. So the director said that this is essentially a story about two characters with Bartel and everybody else being kind of figments of him, that they're all the same character. Like the old lady, Vicky, the woman who's the... So the, all these people are exhibiting, like uh, like you were saying, like this weird deity messianic yeah. relationship with Mark. And with the villagers, they're all supposed to be Bartel, which is interesting. I even think... Like, so the way that this story's told, it's hard because he has all these individual encounters, Mark, that is, with all these characters. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to tell if, like, he's also, like, maybe hallucinating and projecting things. <laughs> I don't know. But the director said it's Bartel is essentially all these other characters, too. He's just setting up a larger story. He said this is an allegory for, like, the religious theme with Jesus. But it's kind of told through Gloria as, like, the Eve character. But Mark is the Jesus figure because what he's doing essentially is uh, he's bearing the sins of Gloria, right? But he's also like redeeming people towards the end. Like, Mm -hmm. why would you forgive your captor when he's doing this shit to you, man? Are you fucking serious right now? Mm -hmm. But when it's told through that allegorical, you know, religious pitch, it makes sense with some of the imagery too, with the crucifixion and stuff. It's, It's setting that kind of thing up. With how much that's almost downplayed, though, like, it's hard to really notice. Yeah. I think. Like I said, I was kind of looking for it just because I felt like the name was a big tip-off. But what this movie seems to linger on doesn't quite to be the moments that really back up that reading. Right, and that's why I say it's like these these encounters and these interactions. It's I get it. I get it, too, but... Right, it's... but I know that there's also other themes too. That's just one of the themes, mm-hmm. but also if it's if subverting... it's only two people though, it may, right. then all the mirroring makes complete sense. That's kind of why I was saying that, like the use of those mirror shots in the beginning. It's like I knew he was setting up like there's going to be a twist where there's you know a switch somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. The other theme I was want to get at was you can see like Mark typically those interactions that Mark has like being idolized and people throwing themselves at you, that's typically what women experience, you know, That's, with a, men. that's something I was noticing, too. I'm like, oh, this is awkward. Right, but that is one of the themes in this film, is instead of it being a female character in that role of Mark, right, you put a male in that position, and you have both women and men, you know, doing the same thing, essentially. it's The only difference is he said that women 
they tend to police themselves. So that's why like they're not as pushy to like pursue as a Bartell character, the male mm-hmm. figure. But they treat Mark the same way like a woman. That's why they turn him into a woman, you know? Like even the use maybe you could say with this the calf and the pig, the way that they're treated or the way Boris treats Mark like a pet when he finds him in the snare until he bites him, you know? It's like the way that men treat women, apparently. No, I I can see that all over. Right, and so that's what I'm saying. There's You can read so many different things depending on which angle you want to come at it, whether it's the religious angle and or, you know, the subversion of mm-hmm. the male and female role. The religious angle feels more like a Life of Brian type scenario to me, I think, though. Especially because this that's movie a, is kind of darkly Very good way of, <laughs> of looking at that. I could see that, for sure. Uh, I mean, even the use of, like, the camera when it gets super manic, right? Mm-hmm. When Bartell and Boris are both mocking Mark. That was nuts. That's awesome. But that's a huge homage to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Even the eyeball. I was like, that's fucking, that's awesome, dude. That's such a good shot. The cinematography in this film is bonkers, man. I even like uh, when Mark is running through the woods, like the use of the sound design, it's basically him breathing and mm-hmm. panting and the sound of him running through the woods. And that's it's very minimalistic, which I like about this film too. Uh, we kind of bounced all around this we, bitch, we kinda but, but where we kind of were, I, I do have to point out that if somebody's about to fucking torture your van, you got to come out swinging, not like, no, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt Dude, you. Dude, yeah, I mean... First, all right, I, I do want to talk about that scene that leads up to all that shit because it's okay. fucking weird, right? Yeah. I think I skipped a little bit when Mark does take that walk. Mm-hmm. That's when Bartell breaks into his van and he's rifling through his shit, which oh, that's yeah. like, that's I like that because you see the like how he has a connection. He's a performer. They're all performers. He does take the role. I think that's where the switch happens. It's like Mark becomes the trapped person because Bartell thinks he's the performer now. Which he kind of tries to do performing, <laughs> but when he's rifling through, he finds those pictures with Vicky. Uh, so I have a note about those. Yeah. So this is going to, of course, be like, why not both? But do you feel like he took those pictures more for his own wink material, right, or to deprive Mark? Yes. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> why I could not both? S- I- Ah, man, that's funny you say that. <laughs> the last time I watched it last night, that was the first thought that came to mind. It's like, he's a little jealous. He doesn't want Mark to see him, but he didn't get rid of him either. <laughs> Which we do find out. Yeah. That is confirmed. But he's rifling through. I mean, it's a total sabotage, right? But later on when Mark does finally see him like breaking his shit, and when Mark breaks also, in, oh my gosh. Had Mark himself found those yet, or had those been slipped secretly into his pocket? Yeah, I think that was part of it. Like, she put it in that money, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I don't think he saw it yet. I mean, maybe he did, but I doubt it. Because if he did, he would have pulled over. (laughs) (laughs) He'd been like, oh, shit, well, I guess old bitch can watch if she wants to. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right, I'm going to reserve those comments for later. (laughs) Oh, yeah. By the way, we fucked up. I didn't know this was a Christmas movie. We would have put this off a couple weeks. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I was telling... All right, so Jeff watched this, and my dad did it with me last night for my second viewing. And... We would have put this off a couple weeks. (laughs) It didn't even dawn on me until I started watching. I was like, wow, you could say this is a Christmas horror film, technically, because... And it's all Jesus-y. Right, exactly. So, 
technically this is a Christmas kind horror like film. Inside was kind of actually perfect. Yeah, it's it's weird. I was like, it's a little weird timing, but yeah, I mean, you could say this is a Christmas horror film. I would say, yeah, you can. All right, getting back to when Mark makes the realization that Martel was like stealing his shit, his cell phone, those pictures. I noticed like the blue door and Mark's wearing blue. So there's like cool tones in this. Mm-hmm. But I was like, that's kind of misleading too. I was like, I feel like in this film tonally, the blue was leading up to the reds. You know, it's like, it's kind of a trap. <laughs> it's not a good sign. But even the, the use of shadows in this film too, I really like that. It was like, all you can see is Bartel. Some of the use of shadows was really neat. But yeah. like you said, when you're coming up to the reds though, like, the most read things were the kids. Yeah. Which is weird. That story leads right back to the dwarf story. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's, yeah. You know, but also, this is where I thought, all right, that makes I fucking one, missed that part. Okay. Complete sense, but. There was 11 of them, wasn't there? There was seven of them in the oh. woods. And I was like, that maybe a coincidence because it made me <coughs> automatically think of seven dwarves. Like, oh, from Snow White. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what I said. This film had a little bit of a fairy tale aspect of it. You know, it's like Mark was in a dream state, but it was a nightmare. <laughs> Let's be very specific there. But a lot of those things are because Bartel's walking through the woods, so he sees that and things of that nature. On the second time through, there wasn't enough evidence to support it, but I did have the thought a couple times of like, so at what point did this movie just become a hallucination and there's something else going on? Right. All right. So we'll continue through, right? Up to the point where Mark finally gets knocked out, turned into Gloria. And it just starts that whole downward spiral. He gets made ugly. <laughs> they go so Christmas tree chopping. those fucking sucked. Dude. Yeah, I was like, that is so... And not in the way... Not, not like it, not like it <laughs> not sucks really, but... to like... I mean, obviously it sucks to have that shit happen and it's but, fucking... <sighs> dehumanizing and there's a reason like that shit happens and even like real torture my actual thought is those clippers really fucking sucked it took forever to <laughs> see any hair start coming off him at all mark has a, a weird cry in this film too like his <laughs> crying is almost laughter we haven't really talked about the fact that this movie is actually kind of funny <laughs> it is <laughs> one like, of those we're having some really serious conversations about a kind of funny movie <laughs> One of my favorite funny moments was the tractor the scene. Oh, I was thinking because we kind of just passed, but because when he knocks him out, then he has to drag him upstairs. Oh yeah, the drag. I, the hair. drag is actually really well done on the the stairs. I like that shadow. But the drag him is the like, thing that I'm so happy <laughs> took so fucking long. I adored. It, the it's drag. realistic. It was so fucking funny. <laughs> it is good. It's good. Yeah, because Mark gets clumped, and it's like, oh. But you're right. He changes him into the dresses. And the mirroring I was saying with the old lady with Mark in this is, you know, when she sees Vicky and Mark, she's looking through the window. And later on, Mark does that a lot. He's looking through the window down at Bartell, mm-hmm. the performer. <laughs> kind of clever ways of doing that. But Well, and Bartell starts off in that scene looking into the threefold mirror. That's what I'm saying. There's a lot of mirroring in this mm-hmm. film. I mean, there's huge foreshadowing moments, but so... it's clever. So did Bartel fuck him that night? He did squeal like a pig. There's a lot of mimicking of that, too, mm-hmm. with Mark. Ooh. Because that just cuts to the tractor. Like, we see them start to fucking spoon, and it holds on the spoon. It holds on the spoon just long enough to be uncomfortable. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> 
even I saw some hip thrusts. Just a little bit, yeah. But we don't know. For well, sure. he like, did wake we don't up happy. Hundred percent the way. Martel was super happy the next morning. That's true, because he was gonna go cut down a Christmas tree, right? He's gonna make Gloria decorate it. <laughs> but he does that like up and down motion with them for the uh, yeah. carnival rides. I'm like, man, that motherfucker. <laughs> so dehumanizing. Motherfucker. And even like when he does drive off, he does like the little parade song. <laughs> I'm like this is ridiculous, but it's good. I mean, it's clever. It lends its hand to, like, this guy's cracking jokes while this guy is being dehumanized. Mark runs away. Like I said, he finally runs into that trap. And I'm like, dude, you gotta at least try. <laughs> you gotta try to get out. But he's fucked. And that's oh, dude, I had Boris the same fucking... Him. I'm like, snare traps work on animals because they don't have hands at all. Come on, Mark. Like, yours might be tied up, but... You can if you just like it. back up into the tree, you can probably Thank untie you. something. It'll loosen a little bit. Or you can do something. You can do something nothing. more than what you did. Because <laughs> what nothing. you did is absolutely nothing. Because he can probably, like, if he just backs up to the tree, he can probably un. I've never used a snare trap. I don't know yeah, like, how sure it gets either, sets but... up. But I'm sure even with his hands behind his back, he can undo you would think. enough to get away. It might still be like hanging off of him or something. I'm not saying he's getting the 100% out of it, but... He has a shot. He has a shot. Yeah, for sure. But he doesn't. But much to his relief and chagrin, Boris shows up. That's what I said with the whole petting thing. Bites Boris. Wait, so... I have a question. Okay. We've already brought it up, so the very next scene is crucifying. When he's in the barn? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, it does, but the villagers also spot Mark driving back. Right, well... Right. But it is, but you're which, right. That's it leads to it. That's important for later on, but as far as Mark's story goes, and right. Mark is Jesus. Yeah, he does. So does this mean that Boris petting him in the snare... Oh, no. So does this mean him being in the snare is Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, and Boris petting him, but eventually going off to grab Bartel makes... Judas. Boris Judas. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because that's what he does. He turns Mark right in. Mark gets crucified, and the villagers start showing up, spying on Mark. They want to see what, what's up with Gloria in the barn. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, from there on out, a lot of the stuff that I thought was interesting is Bartel eventually does go to the villagers and tells them, quit snooping around. And that's when you get... This is one of the things that always reminds me of this film because of how bizarre this scene is. But it does start to break out in that dance and it's interesting because... So first off, that piano was dope. I am all about that discordant tune he played. Yeah, it's, it's so good. The dance. So you were bringing up the shimmy earlier. What's the shimmy? Because I had a theory about the shimmy. Because I didn't notice the shimmy in other places. So my theory only involves this one scene. Right. This is not the only scene where the shimmy happens. It happens in a couple of other scenes. Not very many, but a few. This being one of them, Boris being one of them earlier, and towards the end when they're in the wetlands, I think the big guy kind of rocks back and forth. So if you're reading into this idea that Bartel is all these characters, just projections, is that those little tipping points like that, you could say they're all connected. Like certain characters are connected, like the Boris and the big guy. And, mm-hmm. You know, you drew. I think you drew a good comparison between Boris and the son of the guy from High Tension. Yeah. <laughs> because... The mirror of Bartel is that guy. So there's mirroring of other characters, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's connections because I think that wobbling is 
a way of connecting them back to Bartel through these other characters. But the dance scene itself, right? He actually borrowed it from another Belgian film from like the 60s. It's called One Night, One Train. And I looked it up. You can actually find the clip on YouTube. It's not exactly the same. It's not the intended purpose. But there's a scene where in the film I'm talking about, One Night, One Train, is a gentleman is spots is like really pretty mm-hmm. brunette and there's these other guys watching but because it's in french i don't <laughs> i don't know what the hell they're saying exactly but you can see the jealousy and this song starts up it's a little similar to the piano but not as discordant you know so the music starts up and she just kind of does this like little rock back and forth mm-hmm. and then that guy finally does it with her so their dance is just this rock back and forth and then these other people start to do it. It starts to form, and these other guys are getting jealous, I think, of the guy that's initially dancing with her. But anyway, he said he, he lifted that scene from that film because he wanted to pay more attention to that director. He said because he found you know that some of that guy's works needed to be talked about. See, I was reading way into it. I was thinking of it from like a really arty standpoint because I was like, usually when shit gets really weird, it's you can explain it with being arty. You know what I mean? Oh. One of my favorite things about this is you could turn this into like a, a music meme where you could interject a different song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I was just thinking, let the bodies hit the floor. <laughs> but I know it's just that scene itself. It's, it's very surreal and like, what the fuck is going on? See, so what I read it as, because I only noticed the shimmy in that one scene, is that it was, I guess an interpretive dance version <laughs> of an argument breaking out amongst the townspeople. Okay, yeah, yeah. And they end up all being paired up, except obviously the bartender stays out of it because he's the bartender. The piano player stays out of it because he's the piano he's player. He's got to play the tunes, yeah. Everyone else is paired up, and so there's one deciding vote, and it's the one guy who's not paired up who we know has a thing against Bartel. Yeah. And so I'm like, so they're going to show back up. <laughs> yeah. That's how I read that scene. That's to say there's interesting like little parallels, <clears throat> little mirrors. But the director, when he said these things are happening when you watch the film, and I think this is interesting to note too, is he says that he's borrowing all these different things from masters prior to him is what he said. But he says he goes from like a, a very naturalistic, very minimalistic thing about this film. Like certain interactions feel real, you know? But then... They have these like transitions, which I think are pretty interesting. Is he says uh, it goes into kind of a fantasy, like I was saying earlier. Like he, he said, there's certain elements that come into play, and he uses certain cues, which I thought was interesting too. If you read into like the whole patriarchy and the subversion I was saying about Mark and the female role, is you see these portraits of men in certain scenes. Uh, yeah, I did notice portraits of men. Right. Kind of- but it's always like these Weirdly older up. men almost felt like these... In a weird way, it does look like a father figure kind of looking mm-hmm. sternly down, you know. But in this manner, it's like super demented. But I was like, that's interesting, right? It, it, he likes a lot of the fantasies. From the fantasy, when you have the bar sequence, that's when it becomes surreal. He said there's no more naturalism at that point. He said it's beyond naturalism. He said then when he returns to the end... When Boris shows up, he's happy because he found Bella, his dog, his calf. Yeah. <laughs> right? And they have dinner, and they're all happy, and Mark just, like, loses it, right? And they have the whole spin. He says when that happens, he said that's kind of like a Hieronymus Bosch painting because of the blacks and the reds. 
And he said, it's basically a metaphor for hell, right? And then from that, it gets into the top shot scene where the guys do come in. They shoot Boris and they break into the home and they get Mark for a little bit. But it, it goes from them looking at it how you normally would to that overhead shot. He says, that's basically Sodom and Gomorrah at that point. He says, and then after that, when Mark finally does break out, he says it returns to the natural world again, where it's more realistic at that hmm. point. This is because of the way that the shots, you know, are in nature. And right. It's like, so I was like, that's really interesting. And, and that maybe lend its hand a little bit to the weather patterns, too. I was mentioning earlier with like the extremes that you see happening. It goes from light in the morning, like very sunshiny, to like. It, all of a sudden it's snowing, or all Snow. of a sudden it's raining. <laughs> I did, yeah, I guess there was one weird extreme change that I know because during that final chase scene, I'm like, fucking snow. Right. Wasn't he just like 100 feet in front of him? When Mark goes into Bartels and finds that, and when he comes mm. back out, and then, you know, when he finally gets knocked out and his van's on fire, it's like it's starting to snow again. <laughs> it's like these huge transitions. Just to back up, though, I mean... I definitely see how this all goes. My own reading when I was just going through this myself was the spin to me was a little bit more Lovecraftian in that he accepted that as his new reality and in that acceptance it drove him mad. Oh yeah, I definitely see that. That's why I'm like, I could see it at some point there's this huge mental breakdown where he just, he's lost it, but he's also accepted the fact like this is his new reality, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So I could see him like having conversations with Bartel, but maybe imagining Bartel as these other characters. Perhaps. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. It's it's a weird metaphor for other things, too. We went over it pretty quickly in that top shot, but that is when the rape happens. And a part of me wanted to bring it up during the warnings, but I didn't want to downplay the seriousness of rape. But when it comes to us talking about shit in this section, I do want to point out that it's not irreversible that we're getting. No. Dude's a five-pump chump. Yeah. yeah. Okay, goodbye, Mark. <laughs> Whether it's due to the situation or that he actually finished, I don't know. But yeah, Because a lot of shit's popping off at that moment. I don't need to know at that point, but yeah. you're right. <laughs> it's just, I thought it was interesting, like I said. It gets to the point where that it is happens, so It happens, I don't want to downplay hot. rape. But. <laughs> no, I know you're saying, but the point being is that whole scene is like intense, it's chaotic, there is rape. There's like this weird shit with animals and just families breaking in, wanting Mark's booty hole. It's like, what is going on? The villagers just going with him being Gloria. Yeah. So the thing when I first, I remember way back when, I was thinking that too. Like, oh shit, like the dude from High Tension was fucking Gloria and all the townspeople probably had their turn with her too. But now they're resorting to, you know pigs and cows and whatnot because there's no women around that's another thing once you leave that group home there's no more ladies in this film that's it mark's yeah. the lady <laughs> if that's the way he's swaying that's where he i mean sh that's he should have got it in while he could because oh man i know right I mean, but he is very he's an artist he is an artist right it's hard to know the they depth. don't understand down there they don't understand that we're artists <laughs> you're right <laughs> I thought that was a clever way of like the making villagers that connection. aren't artists. No, they're not. They're not artists like us. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that could be argued. <laughs> There's some sort of artist, that's for sure. Right. All right. So, what do you make of 
I mean, we've already kind of alluded to like it said, a lot. The, the only way that the end of that chase works is with the religious allegory. That's what I was going to say. Is like, why else would they throw that right there in that scene? And then forgiving the guy right there at the end. But all right, after all that plays, even the end, right? It just goes to all these scenic shots. Scenic, yeah. Right. Trees. But, Here's trees. Right. And he's I was like, still lost in the woods. It's yeah, exactly. Like he's totally. He's. What do you make of it? There's no happy ending. You don't know what. No. What happens to Mark? Do you think he's singing anymore after that? No, dude. He's. I mean, he's dead out in the woods. Yeah. Real, realistically, he's dead out in the woods. All right. There is a shot I meant to mention. I talked to Jeff about this last night too, because he he wanted me to mention this about his thoughts. He said what he liked when Mark was driving, you know, through the countryside, and mm-hmm. it got like really dense with fog and the woods, and then it would look clear up in spots. He said he liked that because it was a way of giving him a false sense of security. Like when he couldn't see, you know, that's when like dread usually supposed to set in. But then you have those open patch. You're like, okay, whew, I can see again. But all he's doing is digging himself further into those woods, right? And the shot that I liked, I thought it was a really interesting shot. You can read into it this way. When Mark is looking at the map when he's lost and he's trying to figure out where the hell he's at, mm-hmm. The whole map just looks convoluted with all these roads and just branches. And then when you see the outside, and if you look at the windshield, you get to see a reflection of the trees. And it's just Mm. a mass of branches coming off. I don't know if it was intentional, but if it was, it's super clever for saying that not only is he tangled in the woods, the woods are actually projecting that onto him. Right. (laughs) Right. Through the windshield, but it's like there are some really clever shots in this film, is what I'm trying to get at too. But that one really lends its hand into how I felt like the story unfurls. This movie is cool. It weirdly feels like a lot of other types of movies. Like I said, I mentioned three movies over and over again: <laughs> yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Tusk. Well, you mentioned Baskin, and that also holds, just, especially with like the trip through the fog and the van and shit. That's like, what I thought. I was like, I wonder if if he lifted that a little bit from and the, the descend uh, insanity and right. I mean, there's ascension and descending in this film a lot too. Dagon works. There's oh, I I mentioned because it kind of feels like a Wicker Man too. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. Very cultish. Mm-hmm. You know, the same sort of weird. You're suddenly in this scenario, and there's not really realistically any way of it ever going better for you yeah it's, once you're there at that point he was done for especially like, with uh, who he is yeah i think the lovecraft he doesn't angle, do shit by the way no he doesn't he doesn't resist at all even the lovecraft angle i think works a little bit in this film too like mostly towards the end i don't think yeah. all the way through no not all the way through but just the the tone perhaps mm-hmm. you know it's like he's thrust into this world where hey he's fucked he's already it's already done you yeah know? that was his fate it was already sealed I liked all the things you were bringing up, especially with... I definitely noticed how he was basically put into the women's role. I didn't notice the scene. I hadn't thought about the importance of where they were placing those portraits of the stern-looking old white men. (laughs) Well, yeah, because it took me a little while to kind of notice that. But that also kind of weirdly makes this movie like... A horror movie for guys about the patriarchy. Absolutely, dude. Some of those things that I was going to mention, too, with that, where it lends its hand to what you're saying, is Bartell, when he is having the dinner scene with Mark, I think the first time where he gets Mark to sing, as you see, like a, it looks like a drainage pipe. 
So it's kind of a metaphor for him that he has an empty hole, mm. which is Gloria that's being filled by Mark. But an interesting to know that drainage pipe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> El poop hole. But the fact that Mark was crucified not as a man, but as a woman, Gloria, is another way you could say that, you know, I think I mentioned it a little earlier is you know I can't believe you made me do this. It's kind of a comment that religion you could say Christianity in this case, that is it's misogynistic because Eve gets mm-hmm. crucified for the downfall of man. And so a lot of this is not my like don't take this the wrong way. <laughs> but in this telling, right, men project like all their transgressions, like all these past things that happened to them with the relationships of women, so they cast it on the next woman. So there's always suffering, right? Mm-hmm. So men are projecting like the downfall of things because of Eve and so women bear the brunt of our sins, our transgressions, etc. So him being crucified as woman is like he is he's getting crucified because of glorious sins, not because of what he's done. I wish they would have focused on the crucifixion a little bit harder. Yeah. Well, like when I was discussing that with my dad, he was like, what is this film trying to say? And I was like, well, you can read into it different ways. I, would, I think it would have drove in thinking about it in those ways a lot right. more. Yeah, he said he didn't want to rely too much on cliche. You know, mm-hmm. he's like, he just wanted to do it just enough where it was a, still a little ambiguous. But you can kind of see what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. I understand what he's getting at because he made the comment. And this is kind of like what Lars von Trier said. This little bit of a spoiler is Lars von Trier, in his last film that I watched, I'm not going to mention it because it'll give away, but his statement is is like the way that artists do their pieces, like their first piece is their way of like trying to make a statement without paying too much homage and cliche to the people that influenced them. And it'll be interesting to see how his career pans out because there comes a point where if it holds true with Lars von Trier, you become obsessive-compulsive, and then you become lazy, and then you don't give a fuck what people say, and you make shit for your own reasons. It doesn't have to have a way of like having a story told to you on a plate, so to mm-hmm. speak. It's like, I made that film for myself. You can find meaning however you want to find me. That's kind of what I'm getting at. But the way he said this, he's like, you know, when he made this film, he wanted to pay, like I said, homage to the films that shaped him. But he also wanted to leave a mark that was kind of true to himself, too, I suppose, using different metaphors, different... Mm-hmm. themes things like that so it's like yeah because this film is kind of hard to read if you only watch it once even twice it's a lot to digest because there's so much metaphors and you know like do you really see it's just two characters in this film Bartell and mark and everybody else is a figment or a fragment of the Bartell character yeah i don't care what he says i don't really see that that's what i'm saying it's it's hard for me to i understand what he's trying to do with that but it's hard to follow that the way that things get carried out but mm-hmm. it's for him it was an artistic way of doing it so i understand what his argument is that's kind of what i'm getting at that's about all i have on calvary yeah this one was like one i was really looking forward to and i knew like this film is super bizarre and i like it because it's weird and it's different but it's also not extreme so it's accessible to people who do like horror already but don't necessarily want to make that big dive into extreme you can get your feet wet a little bit with this one Ooh, also weirdly reminds me of November. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's very fantastic. It's got a weird little bit of folkiness to it. Yeah. This film is very interesting entry, not only into horror, but that particular time period, too. Like, it slipped in with the French extreme, Mm -hmm. but it's not really extreme in the high tension and inside sense. 
No, like the French extreme is they've got their hard edge, and then you have this Belgian film, and it's like a Belgian waffle. It's bigger and softer and fluffier. Yeah, like <laughs> it's delicious. <laughs> Still absolutely delicious. All I'm really thinking about right now is waffles. Oh, that does sound good. <laughs> but yeah, I'm uh, pleased that we got to do this. And yeah, I would say definitely check this out if you want something a little bit more bizarre. And uh, like I said, not quite extreme, but you good. Know, you're going to have some awkward <clears throat> moments. I dug it. We got to figure out what we're doing for Christmas still. Yeah. Or do we have a, we have a I think we got between. one in between, yeah. We got to figure out what we're doing next week. <laughs> But in order to catch us, whatever we're doing next week, please hit subscribe, however you're listening to us currently. You can go check out all of our back catalog over www.friedsquirms.com. While you're there, why don't you go click the links over, check out the rest of the podcast network. The rest of the network currently is one other show in which you can also hear me. That's General Nerdery. Yeah. Talk about all sorts of nerd shit. We just recorded episode four. We're recording every other week but we do have a backlog currently, so I'm going to be dropping one a week until we're all caught up. Nice. So I think before the end of the year, or right around the beginning of the new year, we should already have four episodes out. So nice. I would super appreciate it if you guys would go check all that shit out. You can hit us up through the website or by emailing us, squirmcast at gmail.com. Follow us on all the social medias. Those links aren't up on the website yet, but you can search fried squirms on any of them and find us there. Yeah, for sure. And once again, like if you want to give us recommendations, maybe for the upcoming holiday season for uh, a Christmas episode or hey, hit us up, be like... Festivus. <laughs> but yeah, definitely hit us up. Let us know what you think. We want to see the Wrath of Kwanzaabot. Yeah, I mean, there might be some hidden gems we have no idea about. But we also like suggestions. And once again, if you have a film that needs some eyeballs on them, we're up for reviews as well. That's right. But until then, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried squirms out. out.